Let's begin with an image. Okay, let's begin with an image. Imagine you are standing in front of a large window. And if I was Pastor Steve, I would turn around and I would draw that for you. I love it. Like the air is his canvas, right? Just beautiful. I love it. All right. Uh, I'm not him, so we'll just go straight forward with it, okay? Um, there's only one Pastor Steve, and he picked you, so soak it in, okay? This is great. Uh, but imagine you are standing in front of a window, and as you look out of that window, you see down there below you, you see a beautiful garden, and there's this path that runs through the garden and leads out to a gate, and then out beyond the gate, the path takes you out through a meadow to the edge of a forest that, that runs up into the hills. Imagine that you're standing there and you're seeing that and you're taking in this whole landscape and then something odd happens. Out of the corner of your eye, you catch a little bit of a reflection of yourself. Has that ever happened to you when you're looking through a window, you're taking in what is out there and then your eye notices that you can see a bit of a reflection of yourself and you can focus your eyes in a way that then your reflection, your own reflection becomes the main picture. And then that landscape moves into the background out of focus and now you have come completely in focus. Sometimes when we are engaging with scripture, that is what can happen with us. In particular, a scripture like the one that we are looking at today. That's great for that to happen, for us to catch a reflection of ourselves. And even in that moment when we're staring out the window and, and then we see that reflection of ourselves, there's a bit of an eye-opening experience there that you're able to see yourself as a part of that larger picture. And you're reminded that you are a part of that, that you are observing as well. But when it comes to a passage like this, it is dangerous for us to lose sight of the larger landscape and instead focus in on our own reflection that we see within it. And we see ourselves more than we see the larger landscape. A passage like this that is familiar to us, a passage that we have heard multiple times, a passage that we know that we grasp on certain levels, a passage maybe that we've even taught on extensively. When we come to a passage like this, it's easy for us to simply see our own reflection and begin to tune out what else is there in the picture and in the landscape. I wanna challenge myself today and challenge you along with me to allow the focus to shift a little bit, to allow our eyes to see the larger landscape and the invitation that is in front of us, even in a passage that we know so well. An invitation not just to observe through the window, but to step outside and to start walking down that path and see where it might lead us today. Jesus, we ask that you would speak clearly as you already have 
through your word as you already have through worship today. We ask that you would speak clearly again through this passage. Help us to see it. Help us, yes, to see our place in it, but above all else, to see the invitation that is in front of us to explore this in a fresh way. Open us up to that. Open our eyes up. Open our hearts and our minds to you today. To your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here we have it again. You already uh, heard it read, but let's go back to it again. Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's move down the path together. First thing that we need to do is get a little bit of context for what is happening in the larger passage. This is taking place in Matthew chapter 22, but we can hear as we read that, that we are stepping into the middle of a story that is already in progress. So what else is happening around this that can give us insight into the meaning and and depth of understanding of this passage, as we pull back a little bit and we see the chapter as a whole, we see that this is not the first time in this chapter that Jesus gets tested with a trap question like this. In fact, this is the third time of three questions in this same chapter, all back to back. All of them right in order as Matthew uh, hands this to us and delivers this to us. And we can see that it's in response to Jesus's teaching of a parable, quite a wild and provocative parable, that then sparks the religious leaders to begin to find another way to trap him in his words. We've seen the buildup of opposition begin against Jesus, and now it takes a turn here in Matthew chapter 22 it begins to intensify even more. And so the religious leaders come to Jesus with the intent of trapping him in his words, taking something that Jesus says and twisting it and turning it against him. The first uh, test that they give to him is this question about paying taxes to Caesar. And as we know, the the Jewish people at this time, Israel is not a sovereign nation at this time. They are under the oppressive reign and rule of the mighty Roman Empire. And that oppression is expressed in multiple ways, in violence and in brutality. But one of the everyday expressions of that was a heavy burden of taxation upon the people. And so they come to Jesus with this question about paying taxes. And they say, teacher, you are so wise. You are a brilliant teacher. Please help us to understand this. Should we pay our taxes to Caesar? And you can see what the religious leaders are trying to do here. They're trying to trap Jesus between the brutality of the Roman Empire, that if Jesus speaks out against the Roman Empire and says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then he's got the Roman Empire against him, but not just against him, also against the people that he would influence 
when he says, don't pay your taxes to Caesar. But he also had, they have Jesus trapped against the people, the people who are feeling this burden of taxation. And if Jesus just says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, it's what you should do as a good citizen of Rome, then that's going to be deeply hurtful to these people who will feel like Jesus doesn't understand their experience. Beyond that, they're hoping that Jesus might be this Messiah that God is going to send and set them free under this oppression of Rome. And so Jesus is trapped. And in his brilliance, Jesus says, somebody toss me a coin. And when when they do, he says, whose face is on this coin? And whose inscription? And they answer, well, it's Caesar's. And so he flips the coin back to them and says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In other words, on this coin, you see the image imprinted the the image of Caesar on this coin, but you are created in the image of God. The image of God is impressed on you. Give your whole selves to God. You belong to him. Let Caesar keep the change. You give your all-encompassed self to God. Brilliant, brilliant answer. To the question. Next, the Sadducees, a different uh, group of religious leaders. The first question comes from the Pharisees. The second question comes from the Sadducees, and they try to trap Jesus as well. The Sadducees are a rival group to the Pharisees in many ways. They have some significant theological differences. They come to Jesus, and they ask him this trick question about marriage at the resurrection. All right, it's a really convoluted question. You can read it for yourself, but it's a trick question. And at the base of it is this reality. They're asking him this trick question about the resurrection, but the thing is, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So they're asking him about something that they don't even believe in. That's part of their rivalry with the Pharisees. They interpret scripture differently. In fact, the Sadducees believe that because they only saw the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible as the sacred scripture of God, just the books of Moses that they would consider as the sacred scriptures of God. And they didn't feel as they went through those five books that they saw the justification for a theology of resurrection. Therefore, they did not believe it, creating even more tension between them and the Pharisees. Jesus, in his brilliance, answers their question as well. And how does he do it? By going straight to the book of Exodus, one of those first five books of the Bible, and shows them how in what they considered sacred scripture, there is evidence for the hope of resurrection right there. And he says, as God says to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and refers to himself as the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And then Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And right there in Exodus, in God's revelation to Moses, their person, right? Proof, evidence, hope, a seed of hope for the resurrection. Of course, Jesus will go on to give them much more evidence for the hope of resurrection and show them that the resurrection is not just a theology to be debated, but is a person in whom we place our whole entire hope. Third question, 
desperately come to Jesus again. This time it's the Pharisees again. And they hope to trap him with this question about the law. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Again, not a genuine question. Just like with the others, the hypocrisy is clear and on display here. Their motivation is not to learn from Jesus, but to trap him. And their hope here is that Jesus will say something that they can twist and turn against him. Probably some form of whataboutism. We've all experienced that, right? Where you express that you are passionate about this one thing and then the entire internet hates you for not saying that you're passionate about all these other things, right? Anybody ever seen that happen, okay? So it's probably something like that. Jesus will say this thing, then they're going to twist it and say he doesn't care about these other things. But Jesus, in his genius and in his brilliance, gives an answer that brings all of the scriptures together, he says. All of the law, all of the prophets, that is shorthand language for the entire scope of the scripture. Hang on these two commandments, Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. This is brilliant, but it's not just brilliant because it's avoiding a trap, but also because it is revealing a truth that we are still trying to get our minds and lives around. Jesus shows his genius here and his authority in this answer by bringing all of the feast and the fruit of the law and the prophets together into one seed, which is bursting with potential harvest. How many apples are in an orchard? It would take a while, but you could count that, right? I don't want that job, but you could count that. How many orchards in an apple? No way to get our minds around the potential that is within that, that is held within the seed. And that is what Jesus is handing us here in this moment. All of the history of everything that God has spoken and revealed of himself together in this seed. It's kind of like the wardrobe to Narnia. Right, any other Narnia fans in the house? All right, I've got 12-year-old sons, so we are deep into it. 12-year-old twins, so y'all can pray for me on that, okay? We are deep into it, I love it. But like that, with the wardrobe to Narnia, you can get your mind around the dimensions, but once you step inside of it, entire worlds begin to unfold, and that's the truth here with this command. Now, if you're anything like me, one of the things that you will trip over here in this brilliant answer from Jesus, and yet it kind of feels a little bit like he's cheating, all right? Like he's taking liberties because he is Jesus and he thinks he can get away with it. Technicality here, he actually gives two different commands when they asked for one command, right? And it feels like Jesus is sidestepping a little bit and taking a little freedom with that. But the reality, as we begin to press into it, as we can see, the reality is that these two commands are given as one because they are inseparable from each other. It's like two sides to the same coin, or maybe even better, it's like breathing. All right, which is more important to you, breathing in or breathing out? Pick one, <laughs> right? You can't pick one. If you're not doing both, then pretty soon you won't be doing either of them. 
And same is true with this command. This is Christian breathing. This is breathing in the kingdom of God. They are interlocked with each other. They cannot be separated from each other. Once again, revealing revealing the genius of Jesus, but also this deep truth that he is handing to us. The law, Jesus says, it it pulls together all of the law and the prophets. Again, shorthand for the full scope of scripture. It's all 10 commandments in one here, right? Run all 10 commandments through that grid of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And you'll see that each one of them can be seen through that lens. But more than just the 10 commandments, all of the commandments that God has given in the history of his relationship with his people as he has formed them into his covenant community and showed them what it looks like to be his people. It all fits. You see it all through this twin lens of loving God and loving others, enabling us to see the full picture. He says it's it's all of the law, but also he says it's all of the prophets together as well. One of the things I find fascinating about this is you see a thread that runs throughout the ministry of all of the prophets. And it can be, Uh, boiled down really into two words of what the prophets are constantly calling the people of God to. And that is righteousness, a right relationship with God, and justice, a right relationship with others. You see those two words paired together constantly through the ministry of the prophets, oftentimes in the same breath as if they cannot be taken apart from each other. Righteousness, a right relationship with God, and justice, a right relationship with others. And again, here we see this living and alive in the great commandment. Righteousness, right relationship with God, love God with all that you are. Justice, a right relationship with others, and love your neighbor as yourself the fulfillment of it all right here. I love how uh, the scripture passage was presented to us this morning, how you had the New Testament scene, and then there was a pause uh, as the other two came up and read uh, from the Old Testament passages that Jesus is drawing from here. I love how that beautifully illustrates what Jesus is doing, because when Jesus answers these, these questions, answers this question, he's not just pulling these two Uh, commands out of thin air. He's not just creating these commands on the spot here. He created them back there. He's not creating them in this moment, right? Instead, he is reaching back into the history of the people. The first half of the command comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, and you can find that full thing there in verses four through nine. And this is a command that God gives to his people And he says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he goes on to say, these commands are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. As you sit at home, as you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, bind them to your hands and your foreheads, write them on your doorposts and on your gates. Can you hear how all-encompassing this is designed to be? He is crafting a world for the people of God to live within. 
The people took this so seriously and it shaped them so deeply that they picked up this practice of taking that literally when you lie down and when you get up. So at the beginning of every day, they would pray this prayer known as the Shema. It comes, uh, that's just a Hebrew word that means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. And so they would pray that every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Beautiful. They would pray that every morning and then they would end their day in the same way. It would book in their days. It would frame the reality of their lives. And you can hear in that language how this is designed to be all-encompassing, creating a world for them to live within, a reality for them to live within. You hear those words that, that get used there, heart, mind, soul, strength, right? In, the, in, the, in Deuteronomy, it's actually just heart, soul, and strength. In Matthew, it's heart, soul, and mind. In the gospel of Mark, it's heart, soul, mind, and strength, all right? And it gets that full picture there. And you could do an entire sermon series on the distinction between those four terms. All right, there's an idea for you, Pastor Steve, someday. Go for it, all right? It'll be great. You could do an entire sermon series on that, on all of the nuances between those words, especially when you think about the reality. Deuteronomy uh, comes to us in, in the Hebrew language. Um, Jesus is teaching in the speaking language of his day of Aramaic. Uh, the New Testament is written in Greek, and it's coming to us in an English translation. Anybody dizzy yet from that, Right? And so the amount of nuance that you can find in that language of those words, you could explore that all day, but that's not actually the point. The point is not the distinction between the words. The point is the overlapping reality that these words are describing for us. It's telling us that this is a call to an all-encompassing way of living our entire selves all of who we are and all we have, loving God with that reality. I also love that Jesus, in his grace and in his generosity, not just his genius, but his grace and his generosity as well, chooses the Shema as the first half of this answer. Because as we just said, the, the Jewish people would have prayed this every morning and every night. And that's a practice that's not just reserved for the religious elite. For those who have been deeply educated in the depths of the mystery of Scripture. It's not just for the most privileged and gifted among them, but instead it was for every common person. They all participated in this. And as you see the Pharisees, the experts in the scripture going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, the most brilliant teacher they had ever seen in their lives, and this question gets asked of what is the most important commandment out of the entire scope of scripture, the common people around are probably hanging on every word thinking, what is he going to say? What depth of mystery is going to come out of Jesus's mouth to be able to answer this question from this group of experts? And Jesus gives the answer. And they're like, I knew that. I knew that one. It was something that was common to them. 
the grace and generosity of Jesus and showing the way that God had been forming his people all the way along. The second part of the answer comes from Leviticus chapter 19 as Jesus ties these two together and love your neighbor as yourselves. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And I find this answer fascinating as well because at the beginning of Leviticus 19, we get this command where God says to his people, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. And within that description of what holiness looks like, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Any definition of holiness that does not hang on a love of neighbor is empty. It is hollow. It is turned inward on itself. And it's powerful, as we also see, it's not only in this chapter where he says, this is what it means to be holy, be holy. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But also in this chapter, he goes on to give them clear instructions on how they are to treat foreigners and strangers among them. And they are to treat them with compassion and grace and generosity and hospitality. This is in a day and time when a stranger and a foreigner would have been seen as a threat and an enemy. Not like there's any time now that would be like that at all. And yet in that cultural mindset, God cuts right through that. And he says, no, they are not your enemy. They're your brothers and your sisters. They are your neighbors and you are to love them. He expands the definition of neighbor, even in the same passage in which he tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what holiness looks like. The African bishop and towering theologian of Christian history, Augustine, defined sin as that image of the heart curved inward on itself. He said, that's what sin looks like. Martin Luther later picked up the same language and said the same thing. It is the heart curved inward on itself. And they said, go all the way back to the first sin recorded in Genesis chapter three. And that is what is happening. It is the heart turning away from God and curving inward on itself, collapsing inward going hollow on itself. I love that John Wesley, from whom we find our stream of uh, Christian history and larger church family, John Wesley answers, and holiness looks like the heart curved outward in love of God and others. I think it is fascinating that John Wesley is asked over and over and over again to define what he means by holiness. And every time he reaches for the same answer, whether it's in a sermon or a song or in his journals or in his letters, he says over and over again, holiness is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're looking for anything Other than that, you are looking wide of the mark and you have gone off of the royal way. That's what he says. 
Holiness is love. It is love of God and it is love of neighbor. And what happens when a person actually buys into that? What is the result of that? What happens when a person is transformed by this holy love of God and it becomes holy love for God and holy love for others? We see the result of that in Christian history. As we look back through the ministry of John Wesley, we see a revival breakout that's a spiritual awakening that is incredible. And and there's this, this element tied to it that is not just a spiritual awakening, but there's also this social reformation that comes along with it. That with this wave of the move of the Holy Spirit, as people are coming into the kingdom of God in droves, those same people are also being sent out with compassion and love to the community around them. So much so that historians will point to the Wesleyan revival as being one of the elements that saved England from a likely bloody revolution, like what was experienced in France. They went out to what we would often call the margins. I don't like to call them the margins because if I call something else the margin, then that kind of insinuates that I'm at the center of the story. So let's call it the center of the story because that's where we find Jesus over and over again. They went to those places empowered by love of God, which gave birth to love of neighbor, which gave birth to spiritual awakening and social transformation in the world around them. But it wasn't just for something on that side of the pond. It came here as well. And in the 1830s and the 1840s, there was a woman named Laura Smith Haviland who was so moved by this. uh, She began as a Quaker, but she became a Wesleyan. She was kind of pushed out of the Quakers for being too much of a radical abolitionist, preaching and leading against slavery, preaching and acting against the evil of slavery. Laura Smith Haviland goes on to found the very first anti-slavery organization in the state of Michigan. She goes on to found her house, becomes the very first station on the Underground Railroad in the state of Michigan. And she founds the first integrated, racially integrated school in the state of Michigan. Her influence was so beautiful and compelling that there's now a town in Kansas named in her honor. Somebody from Kansas? All right, awesome. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. In my own state of North Carolina, there was a young man, he was actually from Ohio. His name was Reverend Adam Crooks. And at the age of 23, in the year 1847, he stood up among a group of Wesleyans in Ohio because they said there's a a group of people in North Carolina who are asking for us to send them an abolitionist pastor to help them start some abolitionist churches, Wesleyan churches down in the South, in the heart of the evil of slavery. And at the age of 23, he stood up and the people there said he was white as a sheet when he stood up because he knew what he was getting himself into. And trembling, he said, with God's help and your prayers, I will go. He was single and knew that he could go and give his life 
And as he looked around at the others, he, he thought they had more to lose. So he decided to give his life for the cause. And he went and he started a series of churches in North Carolina, about 20 miles from where I live now. First Wesleyan churches in the South. They were beat. They were hanged. They were shot at. We still have the door from the original church that they started with the bullet holes in the door that happened while they were meeting for worship. But they went. Why? Because of this. They were driven by this, not because they were activists, because they were Christians. And they believed what Jesus said, that holiness looks like love, love of God with all that we have and all that we are and love of our neighbors, regardless of what it costs us. It looks like the heart turned outward. And I challenge you today, if your definition of holiness looks like the heart curved inward, that's hollowness. That's not holiness. That is sin. Holiness is not in danger of being contaminated by the world around us. Holiness is contagious to the world around us. And the love of God is fighting to get out of us and into the world. Now, you might be thinking, really? Love? That's the answer. (laughs) Really? You're coming with love? It's so weak. It's so shallow. Is love shallow? Is love weak? If you think that, think again about the context into which this is happening. We already talked about the context of Matthew chapter 22, but very quickly, what comes before Matthew chapter 22? If you guess Matthew chapter 21, you are correct. The beginning of Matthew chapter 21 is the triumphal entry where Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, knowingly embodying this imagery of the arrival of the Messiah. The people pick up on that imagery as well and welcome him as such and name him the king that they have been waiting for. This is utter blasphemy to the religious leadership. And remember the Roman Empire? Utter treason to Rome. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And he goes right into the teeth of it. And he makes that bold proclamation. What does he do next? A little thing we call the temple incident. Incident is a really funny word to attach to something as severe as what happens in that moment as Jesus goes through and he flips the tables. How do you think that went over with the religious leadership? And then there's the moment of cursing the fig tree where he goes up to a fig tree hoping to see fruit on the branches because it is flourishing with leaves. In other words, it has this this presentation that there's life and there's fruit, but at closer examination, there's no fruit on the branches. And he curses it as a critique of the religious leadership of the day. Is that weak? That's Matthew chapter 21, y'all. So Jesus is now in the last week of his life. Three firebrand, controversial moments after another. And he's coming into this last week of his life. The cross is looming. And he's pressed. What's the most important commandment? Does he reach for something weak and shallow? No. He's already on a roll. 
And he says, you want to know the most revolutionary idea ever? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That is something that will turn the world upside down.